Good morning, my name is Jeff. It's my privilege to look with you at uh, Luke 17, 20 to 18, 8 that May just read for us. A few little difficult bits in this passage. Can I encourage you to have it open in front of you? Check that uh, what I'm saying is actually what it says, uh, what, uh, what God says in his word. Let's ask him for his help. Heavenly Father, do please help us now as we look at your word to understand it and help us to put it into practice in our lives that we might, uh, that we might be prayerful and that uh, at the last day Jesus would find faith on this earth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 2000, author Bruce Wilkinson wrote a book. It was called The Prayer of Jabez, Breaking Through to the Blessed Life. Uh, this book became the number one bestseller in Christian bookstores. Uh, but not just in Christian bookstores, it uh, was also a number one New York Times bestseller as well. The Prayer of Jabez, more than 10 million copies of the book were sold. And the book is based on um, two verses from the Bible. Uh, from the book of 1 Chronicles, let me read them to you. It's actually Jabez's prayer, as you'd expect. Uh, this is from 1 Chronicles chapter 4. Uh, Jabez was more honourable than his brothers. His mother had named him Jabez, saying, I gave birth to him in pain. Probably rings a bell for many people. Um, Jabez, uh, Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. Wilkinson says that these verses contain the key to a life of extraordinary favour with God. He talks about how Jabez prayed for blessing from God and he got it. Therefore, he says, we should pray for blessing from God and we will get it. Uh, Wilkinson recommends that we pray the prayer of Jabez every day. But just modify it a little bit. Instead of bless me and enlarge my territory, you might want to say, bless me and let my stock portfolio continue to grow. Or bless me and uh, give me a better job or something like that. Wilkinson says this. If you commit to offering the same prayer on a regular basis, every day, pray your prayer of Jabez, you will find yourself extravagantly blessed by God as a regular part of your life experience. Wilkinson says, this prayer works because that's God's will for our lives. It's what we should expect from this life. God wants to bless us. God wants us to have blessed lives. He wants us to be happy and healthy and wealthy here and now. Wilkinson writes, your father longs to give you so much more than you may have ever thought to ask for. God's great plan for you is to sweep you forward into the profoundly satisfying life he has waiting. Now, as excellent as uh, all that sounds, I think that if most of us were to read the book, we would disagree with it. Um, Presbyterian, Luke, Presbyterian minister Luke Tattersall wrote a review of the book, and he said this. He said, uh, if we were to start listing the problems with the book, it would be very hard to know where to begin. It's a book that gives a very unbiblical view of what blessing means. I suspect if we were to read the book, we'd go, yeah, I can see that that is wrong. But I also suspect 
that the way we pray shows that we've actually absorbed quite a lot of the thinking behind the prayer of Jabez. We very easily make similar mistakes and it is revealed in our prayer lives. What do you pray about? Do you pray at all? If you do pray, what do you pray about? Do you pray for God to to, to bless you and to bless your family? Do you pray for peace and harmony at the dinner table? Do you pray uh, that God will provide for you the things that you want, the things that you need? Do you ask God to give you a good job, to give you good relationships, to give you money, to give you good health? Do you pray for your children to study hard, get good marks? Do, do, do Do you pray for a blessed life? I do. Absolutely. I know I pray for all these things and I don't apologise for it. The Bible is perfectly clear. Philippians chapter 4, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. If I'm anxious about it, I should pray about it. If I'm worried that my kids are failing their exams, I should pray about it. If I'm worried about relationships, I should pray about them. But I wonder... What makes my prayers any different to those of the prayer of Jabez? Do my prayers that God will bless my life and my family, do they reveal that I expect a life of blessing here and now? Are my prayers so focused on this life, health and, 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 and relationships and, and, and money, and are they so focused on this life that I lose track of what's truly important? Are my prayers in line with what Jesus wants for me as a prayer? Well, let's have a look at Luke chapter 17, because I think there's uh, lots of helpful stuff in here for us. As I say, it's not all that easy, but I think it's really helpful. So let's look together. Luke chapter 17. Uh, In this first scene, the Pharisees asked Jesus a question. Uh, They want to know when the kingdom of God will come. Now, again, you've got got to put yourself in their shoes. They are looking for an earthly kingdom. They think Jesus is going to come, raise up an army, smash the Romans, uh, and then set up a palace like King David in Jerusalem in charge of an army, and then it's going to be like it was in the book of Samuel, uh, with, with Israel ruling the world again. Jesus says, you've got the wrong idea completely. The kingdom of God... It's not a kingdom with a castle. It's not on earth. It's not a thing you can see in that sense. But Jesus goes on to say, but what you don't realize is this, the kingdom is right here with you. It is in your midst. What does he mean by saying that? Well, he means he's with them, doesn't he? The king is is, is there in front of them, and people are putting their trust in Jesus and following him. They're entering the kingdom But meanwhile, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they can't see it. They they don't realise the extraordinary significance that Jesus is standing right in front of them. They don't realise the significance of who he is and what he's doing. Luke chapter 17 and verse 20, have a look with me. Luke chapter 17 and verse 20. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come... Jesus replied, 
The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or, or, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus then turns to the disciples and he warns them because they're still making the same mistake that the Pharisees are making. They still think Jesus' kingdom will be an earthly kingdom. They are hoping that he'll conquer the Romans and then have a big castle and they'll be sitting on thrones with him on earth in a castle. Jesus says, you've got the wrong expectation as well. Here on earth, you will long for God's kingdom to be established just like that, but you're not going to see it. Verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. Jesus says that his kingdom will come. He will rule the earth, and there'll be no mistaking it when his kingdom comes. It's going to be plainly obvious to everyone. But first, Jesus says, he's not going to raise up an army. No, no, first, Jesus says, he has to suffer and be rejected. Verse 24. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first... He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And then Jesus then talks to his disciples about what they should expect this life to be like. What will it be like before that final day? What will it be like before Jesus returns and, and, and changes everything? What, what, will it like bef- be, what will it be like before that final judgment, before God establishes his kingdom? Jesus says... It'll be like the days of Noah before the flood. Before God judged the world with the flood. He says it'll be like the days of Lot before God judged the city of Sodom. In other words, it's just going to be business as usual. Before Jesus comes, it's going to be ordinary. People are just going to get on with life and ignore God. Verse 26 Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. People are just going to go on as normal, living as if there is no God, but judgment day will come with sudden finality and the people of this world will be divided. Some will be saved, some will be lost. Verse 31. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Remember what happened to her? She looked back. Whammo. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. This is, this is, 
massive judgment, massive division. And the disciples say, where is it going to happen? Where is this judgment going to happen? And the answer is, everywhere. Everywhere the judgment is warranted, judgment will come. Everywhere the judgment is deserved, judgment will come. No one will get away with it. Like vultures swooping onto a dead body, wherever it is, they will find it. Verse 37. Where, Lord? They asked. He replied, Where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. And now in this last section, Jesus tells his disciples a parable. It's a parable to tell them what they should be doing while they wait for this last day when Jesus returns and judgment comes. While they wait for Jesus to return and establish his kingdom. While they wait, while everyone else is ignoring God, like in the days of Noah and Lot. It's a parable to encourage them to pray. To pray to God. Ask God to send Jesus back. Bring justice. It's encouraging the disciples to pray for justice with persistent faith. And the parable is a judge. He's not a particularly good judge. He's not particularly concerned for justice. There's a widow. She's facing some kind of injustice. What the widow does, she keeps on coming back to the judge, day after day after day, to plead her case again and again and again, over and over and over, until finally the judge goes, I just want to get rid of this woman. I give her what she wants just to stop her from bothering me. Chapter 18 and verse 1. Uh, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. I love that little introduction. I wish that was there for every parable, just to tell exactly what this parable is talking about. (laughs) Here's what it means, just in case. To show them they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Uh, that word attack me, uh, literally it, it means uh, that she won't give me a black eye. Um, and I, don't think it's talking, I don't think he's worried that she's going to punch him. It's a, it's a metaphor. Let me, let me quote from a commentary. Uh, used figuratively, uh, to give someone a black eye means to wear them down emotionally. Okay, she's, he, he answers her pray, prayer basically just to get her off his back. Okay, she's driving him crazy. Well, now Jesus applies the parable. God is not like that judge. He is not unjust. He's not unwilling to answer our prayers. But God is like the judge in one way. Like the judge, God will answer our persistent prayers. In fact, if the unjust judge will do it, God will definitely do it. He will definitely sustain us as we prayerfully serve him in this life and he will definitely answer our prayers bring Jesus back, vindicate his people, bring justice, establish his kingdom. Verse 6. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him 
day and night. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. God will answer his people's prayers for Jesus to return and bring justice. But now there's just a final twist, a sting in the tail here. Because Jesus says, God answering the prayer and sending Jesus back and bringing justice, that's not actually the big issue. The big issue is not whether God will do these things. He will. The the big issue is not whether God will answer the prayers of his people. He will. Jesus says the big issue is this. When Jesus finally does come, will there still be people faithfully praying? Will they be praying for Jesus to return? Will they be praying for justice to come? Will they be praying that God's name will be hallowed, that his kingdom will come, that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Will there be people trusting Jesus, waiting for Jesus, praying for his return? Still in verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? All right, can you see what's here in this passage today? Then a few little tricks in it, aren't there? Uh, The Pharisees ask Jesus, where are we going to find this kingdom of yours? He says, well, it's not an earthly kingdom, you can see, but it's right here in your midst. you just got to open your eyes and see it. Jesus then talks to the disciples. He, He says to them, if you think it's going to be a kingdom on earth, you're confused, you're confused. God's kingdom will fully and finally come. Jesus will come back to this world. There'll be no mistaking it, no ambiguity about it. The whole world will be judged and transformed. But first, he must suffer. And the disciples are not going to see Jesus' kingdom on this earth in their lifetime as they they will suffer in this world for Jesus. In their lifetime, people will go on rejecting and ignoring God, just like in the days of Noah and of Lot. And Jesus himself will be rejected by that generation and die and rise again. And so Jesus calls on the disciples to keep on praying. To pray persistently like that widow. God, will you please send Jesus back? Will you please vindicate your people? Will you please bring justice to this world? All right, well, let's think about applying this passage to ourselves. I reckon the big idea is this. Will Jesus find us praying when he returns? Uh, Will he find us praying for him to return and to bring justice? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith among us? It'd be nice if we're sitting in church when he comes, won't it? Um, Or in Bible study, maybe, or something like that. Having a quiet time, that'd be a good time for him to come, wouldn't it? Unlike that persistent widow, the thing for us is we live comfortable lives. We're not suffering injustice. We don't have, like that widow, we don't feel a sense of our own weakness and the injustice that we're facing. And, and so we're not, we're not crying out to God for justice in the same way that she is. We feel like life's pretty much under control. And so I think it is very easy for prayer to fall off our agenda. We forget to pray for Jesus to return and bring justice. But friends, we live in a world full of injustice. 
And if we, lo- if we love God, if our deepest concern is for his glory, if we long most of all that, that God's name be hallowed, even if we're not suffering injustice, we ought to be praying about it all the time, praying for Jesus to return, praying for God to hallow his name and bring justice to this world. Is that what you're praying for? As I said at the start, it's not really the focus of my prayers. I'm not praying about God's glory and about all the injustice of the world and God bringing it to an end. My prayers are a lot more like the prayer of Jabez. Basically, God bless me, bless my family, bless our dog, bless our lives here and now. Same for you? I suspect it is for many of us. So friends, what I want to do to, um, just in this last part, is I want to think about the book of the prayer of Jabez and compare it with this passage because I think this passage shows three big mistakes that are in the book, the prayer of Jabez, but also the same three big mistakes that I think lead us to pray the way that we do or perhaps to not pray the way that we don't pray. Three big mistakes that cause our prayer life to be much closer to the prayer of Jabez than to what Jesus is saying here in Luke. First big mistake. First mistake the book makes is this. It undervalues the blessing that we already have in Jesus. In his review, Luke Tattersall puts this really well. Let me quote him at length. He says, When it comes to understanding what it means to be blessed by God, we have to remember that the promises to Abraham find their fulfilment in Jesus. All the blessing we see God give Israel in the pages of the Old Testament are just a shadow of the greater things to come in Jesus. In a book about breaking through to the blessed life, the subtitle, Wilkinson fails to see that we already have the blessed life if we trust in Jesus. He fails to see that we already have been blessed more than we could ever hope for and more than Jabez could ever have dreamed of, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In that sense, the book is a bit like the Pharisees here in Luke chapter 17. Give me a sign on earth that your kingdom is present. Show me the castle. Show me the money. But but meanwhile, God's kingdom is right there in front of them. Right there in their midst. They see Jesus And they undervalue the blessing of what they have right in front of them. It's a mistake that Wilkinson makes in the book. It's a mistake the Pharisees made. And I think we often make the same mistake. And it shows up in our prayers. What does your prayer sound like? Does your prayer life sound like a shopping list? All the things you don't have that you want. Does your prayer life sound like a ransom note? God, give me this or I'll... whatever threat you can make to God, with all your demands to God? Or do you find yourself whinging and complaining to God about all the things in your life that you don't have and all the things that you're not happy about? Is that your prayer life? Unfortunately, it's often true for me. We need to remember what we've got in Jesus. As Philippians chapter 4 puts it, we need to present our request to God. Do you remember how to do it? With prayer and perdition, present your request to God with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Always remembering 
as we ask for what we don't have, always remembering that what we do have in Jesus is way more important than anything we're worried about here or now. Way more important than anything we're unhappy about. Way more important than anything we don't have is what we do have in Jesus. Always remembering that, as the Apostle Paul put it, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us because of Jesus. That's the first mistake that this passage corrects, the way we undervalue Jesus, and I think it should be reflected in way more gratitude and thankfulness in our prayers. Our second mistake is this. The book, The Prayer of Jabez, it expects things from God now that are only promised for heaven. Did you get that? It's what theologians call over-realized eschatology. The book expects things from God now on earth that God has actually only promised for heaven. Uh, Wilkinson says that God's plan for us in this life is to be healthy, wealthy and happy. God longs to bless us with satisfying lives now. We just need, like Jabez, to ask. And then we'll release the unclaimed blessings that God has for us. But what he fails to do is to read the Bible in its context. The Old Testament, particularly the book of 1 Chronicles, is set in the context of the promised land of Israel. Again, Luke Tattis puts this really well. Uh, what Jabez prays is exactly what God has promised to give Israel. Land, blessing and rest from all their enemies. God's willing to grant Jabez's prayer because it's what he promised to give his people. In the Old Testament, he said, if you do this in the promised land, this is what you'll get. Jabez's prayer is a promised land prayer. But friends, the New Testament is clear about this. You and I are not in the promised land. We have a promised land. Our promised land is the new heaven and earth. But we're not there yet. Wilkinson expects God will give us all the blessings of health and wealth and happiness here on earth. He's a bit like the disciples in Luke chapter 17. They're hoping Jesus will conquer the Romans, build a castle. They'll sit on thrones, having grapes put in their mouths, in glory here on earth. Jesus says it's a wrong expectation. Did you see it in the passage? What did Jesus say to expect God's uh, life is going to be like while we wait for him to return? Did, I didn't see any mention of grapes there, did you? Well, actually... People eating and drinking and giving marriage, they're, they're probably enjoying their grapes. Jesus says, expect that life on earth will be like the days of Noah. Everyone's ignoring God, getting on with life, while Noah looks like an idiot building an ark on dry land. Uh, Jesus says, expect that life on earth will be like the days of Lot. Everyone ignoring God and getting on with life, while Lot looks silly trying to run around and tell people, get out, because it's about to be blown up. It's a mistake the disciples made. It's a mistake Bruce Wilkinson made. Again, friends, I think we often make the same mistake. We expect God to give us comfortable, blessed lives here on earth. We're shocked and surprised when bad things happen, when people suffer or die, when things don't go the way we hope. Our mistake is this. We misunderstand God's timing. We expect blessings promised for heaven to be ours here on earth. Okay, see the first two mistakes then. Mistake number one, can you remember? It's just not realising the blessing that we have in Jesus. And then mistake number two, expecting stuff now that's promised for heaven. Leads us to the third mistake. Mistake number three, 
we don't pray enough about Jesus' return and bringing justice. We don't persevere in that prayer. And the book, the prayer of Jabez, calls on people to pray with persistent prayer. In that sense, great. Ask for the same thing every day. But it's not the prayer of the widow in Jesus' parable, is it? Jesus calls on us to cry out day and night for God to bring about justice for his chosen ones. For God to, well, for God to hallow his name, for his kingdom to come, for people to be part of that kingdom, have the blessing of the coming day, the forgiveness of our sins, being kept from temptation. Does that prayer sound familiar to you? Funny how Jesus gave us the prayer to pray and then we pray completely different things. Jesus calls us to pray Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. What are you praying for, friends? Is it all prayer of Jabez prayers? Praying for God to bless you in this life? Or are you praying kingdom prayers? All right, can you see the mistakes this passage corrects? Undervaluing the blessing of Jesus, misunderstanding God's timing, and therefore praying about this world rather than Jesus' return and justice, final justice. Our friends, um, here's the big idea. Jesus will soon return. Is he going to find you praying? We already prayed the Lord's Prayer, but I reckon we should do it again. Um, I think it'd be good for us to finish praying, but we'll do uh, the version from Luke with my couple of little changes that I explained a few weeks ago. Just to have a quick look at it. What are we praying for? We're asking that God's name will be glorified, his kingdom come, that we all, uh, this world, will have the blessing of the coming age that is our sins forgiven and being transformed, not even being tempted to sin anymore. Good prayer. Perhaps one to add to your everyday prayers. Should we pray together? Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day the bread of the coming age. Forgive us our sins. We also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Amen.